Well, I'm going to be reading from Colossians 1, 12 through 23. If you'll stay standing for the reading of the word of the Lord. I'm giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, become a min became a minister. Thank you. All right, before I get started, I would like to open up in prayer. I need it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that we can open up your word, Father, and talk about you, things that are so much greater than us, Father. And I come before you, Father, humbled, knowing that I fail at communicating accurately everything, how beautiful, how big, how creative you are, God. So I pray for help to communicate to the best of my ability, Father, how great you are what this text says about you, Father. This is your holy word, and I pray for help that we can honor you, Father, and that we can be changed by your holy word, Father, and become greater likeness towards you, Father. Please help us, Father, to hear this, to understand this, to treasure this, your holy word, Father. I pray for your help, and I lean to you. In Jesus Christ's name I pray, amen. All right, so... Um, before I get started, uh, first, I want to thank you all for praying for me and my family. We just got back from Mexico like a week ago, and um, we, uh, we, the entire family went to Mexico and stayed for 10 days, 11 days with the missionaries there in Mexico, just kind of praying, is that where God's leading us? And so I appreciate the prayers. Um, it was a great trip. We were able to preach in some areas where there's no churches, encourage local believers, encourage the missionary. And, uh, and we're just going to keep walking through those doors as God opens those doors. And so um, I appreciate prayers for that. Um, getting into this text, Colossians chapter 1. Um, many scholars believe that this text is a hymn. Okay, um, We don't see it in English because this was written in Greek. And so it was translated for us in English. So there's some poetic things going on here we don't see in the English. But also, this is incredibly dense. Like, there's a lot packed in this passage. And so typically, so we live in this age where, like, everybody reads, you know, for the most part. There might be a couple of people out there who can't, who are illiterate. But for the most part, everybody has a Bible, like, 
you have one here with you or you brought you have one at home and you can go home and you can actually open up the Bible and read God's word for yourself. Well, that has not been the case for most Christians in the last 2,000 years. And so what Christians would do before they had access to God's word is they would memorize creeds, dense sections of scripture uh, or hymns. They would sing these hymns because the hymns would help them memorize these dense passages of scripture. Now, why would they do that? They do that so they could, they could understand what they believe. And so there's so much going on here, which really, these are just kind of the basics of Christianity. And we're going to walk through those today. Okay? And so um, we're going to, and I'm going to break up this section. I know it's a lot of scripture, but I'm going to go pretty quick. Um, we're going to break it up into four sections. Okay? And so this first section is verses 12 through 14. Okay? So can we pull that up real quick? Okay. 12 through 14. I'm going to read it again, and we're going to talk about it as we go, okay? And also, this is a, so while I was in Mexico, I had the opportunity to preach several times, and this section in Colossians is something I preached on, so it's always cool that I can preach this, which this word of God is the same no matter where you're at in the world, and I can come back here to Fountain Inn and preach the exact same thing. Like the message that applies in Mexico applies here in the States, People are the same. Our problem is the same. Our Savior is the same. Our God is the same. And so um, we'll get started. Uh, verse 12 through 14. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Okay, there's two things I want to look at in this section. Inheritance, what does that mean? What are we talking about? And we see two kingdoms, domain of darkness, kingdom of Christ. Okay, let's start with inheritance. I think Paul does a really good job of spelling out inheritance in Galatians chapter 4. And so I'm just going to paraphrase for you. But if you read the first half of Galatians chapter 4, Paul tells a story. He says, there's two kids one kid is a slave. The other kid has a father, but his father has a huge amount of money. But his father's died and left this inheritance for this child. He said, now, both the children, one's a slave, one has an inheritance, but he can't get that inheritance until he grows up. So while the children are young, they're essentially the same. Somebody provides food for both of them, Somebody provides clothing for both of them. Somebody takes care of both the children. If you look at them, their lives are basically the same. Yet one is in bondage, and the other one has an inheritance waiting for them. This is what we see in the world around us. There's only two categories of people out there that you meet. Those who have the inheritance of the gospel, Jesus Christ, and those who don't. And so... While we're here on this earth, we go through trials and tribulations and sufferings, and sometimes it doesn't seem like we have an inheritance, but we do. We go through the same thing everyone else does. Okay, uh, and another way to understand this, Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells the parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like, and he explains 
this parable we know as the wheat and the tares, okay? And so that's like King James language. I'm going to use corn and weeds. And so he says, suppose that a gardener, he goes and he plants a bunch of corn, okay? And in the night, his enemy goes and plants weeds with the corn. And then as it starts to sprout, the helpers of the gardener say, well, well there's, there's stuff in here that's not corn. You want us to rip it up? He's like, no, no, not, the gardener says, not yet, because you might tear up the corn in the process of pulling up the weeds, because you, it's hard to tell the difference between them. They both look green. They're growing together. He said, no, this is what we're going to do. We're going to wait till harvest time, because as they grow, the corn becomes more evident that it's corn. It's producing fruit, and the weeds become more evident that they're weeds. He said, at harvest time, we're going to cut them both down. And the corn we're going to put in the barns, and in the weeds we're going to put in the fire. And he said, that's the kingdom of heaven. That's the same way. The two children growing together, it's hard to tell the difference between them. One has an inheritance. The corn and the weeds, they grow together. It's hard to tell the difference between them, but the fruit, it becomes evident that it is corn and not weeds. And so that's the same thing. Um, so that helps us understand this idea of inheritance and really helps us understand this idea of domain of darkness and the kingdom of Christ. Both occur on this world. Now, I've heard a pastor use this illustration to talk about inheritance that helps me understand it. So I'm going to share it with you all. First, I got to drink some water. Okay, um, suppose there's a guy going to collect like $5 million, okay? That's his inheritance that's coming in, and he has nothing to his name right now. And he's driving to, uh, let's say, downtown Greenville, and he's on his way, and he gets to about Pleasantburg. His car starts breaking down. He's got to pull over. He almost makes it to Stone Avenue, and his car breaks down. And he's about to go and pick up $5 million, and his car just breaks down right there close to Stone Avenue. And then he gets out, and he is, he's just complaining and worrying about his broken car. He's worried, like, where am I going to get a radiator? Oh, my goodness. And, the, like, he's about to inherit $5 million, but yet he's preoccupied with his current situation. That is where a lot of Christians act. They're going to inherit everything going to live with God for all eternity, but yet they're complaining about a broken radiator here in this world. Now, yes, we need to be obedient and faithful with what God has given us, but at the same time, our treasure is not here on this world. And so like Matthew 13 also, where we see the parable of the wheat and the tares, also has this parable where it says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And he says, suppose you're walking out and you see in a field a treasure. And it says, the man goes and he buries this treasure in the field. And then he goes, he takes everything he has and he sells it. Everything he owns, he sells. And in joy, goes and buys that field. That's the picture we see of treasuring Christ. When we see him, we're going we're gonna to sell everything. To have him because in comparison that treasure is more valuable than anything we own 
That's what it looks like when our inheritance is in heaven, when our treasure is in heaven. And so I, it helps me having illustrations, okay? And so I just threw a bunch of, you out, bunch of them at you just now. But it helps me understand this idea of inheritance and the two kingdoms, okay, in this section. There's one more I want to throw at you, and this one's from C.S. Lewis. Because in, in this passage, we see the inheritance and we see a domain of darkness and the kingdom of Christ, okay? So, the domain of darkness, kingdom of Christ. Um, C.S. Lewis says a lot of times, or, yeah, people treasure things that aren't valuable, okay? And let me put it like this. Suppose you're in a dark room and a person has a medallion around their neck, okay? A gold chain and a medallion. And in this dark room, it's almost like Gollum. They're like, oh, my precious. And they're just like, oh, this is, this is awesome. I love this necklace. This thing is awesome. I love how shiny it is, even though I can't really see it, how smooth it is. This thing is awesome. But then someone comes and cuts the light on, and they're not holding a medallion on a gold chain. They're holding a roach on a string. And that's, that's an illustration, and it can be a little humorous, but that's the illustration of what we do with sin. Like if you're in the domain of darkness, what you're treasuring is the things on this world. And really, if the Holy Spirit cuts the light on, you see that you're, what you're treasuring, whether it's alcoholism or slander or gossip, pornography, whatever that sin is that you're clinging so tightly to and treasuring is really filth. And the light exposes it for what it truly is. And so when we go from a domain of darkness into a kingdom of Christ, we're going into the light. And our treasure goes from treasuring the things of this world to treasuring God himself. Okay, so that's the first section. Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14 shows the inheritance. It shows the kingdom. There's two kingdoms, domain of darkness and kingdom of God. And so now let's go to the second section, Colossians 1, 15 through 18. <clears throat> he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by... All right, I'm going to stop right there. Because this is something that a lot of times people get wrong. In fact, most of the cults out there, this is where they go wrong. They say, oh, firstborn of creation, God was created. Jesus was created. Okay? Like, if we didn't have any other books of the Bible, and, like, we didn't read the rest of this chapter, like, this is the only sentence we have from the Bible, maybe you could come to that conclusion. The only problem is we have, like, logic and then the rest of the Bible. Okay? So, yes... The Bible does use firstborn in the definition of, like, actually the first person born. But it also, also uses it as, like, the eldest child receiving more honor, okay? And so I want to just show you from the scriptures that that's what we're talking about here. Firstborn meaning the preeminence, like, first place, okay? <clears throat> So if you go to Exodus 4.22, and I'll just read it for you. Exodus 4.22, 
God says, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Now, Israel is a nation. That's what he's talking about there. So Israel was not literally the first nation created. There were many nations that existed before Israel. God chose Abraham and used Abraham's descendants to, to and that's what, that's what Israel comes from. Okay, so there were multiple nations that existed before Israel ever came on the scenes. And so just looking at how we, God uses it in the Old Testament, firstborn is not talking about literally the first nation that was born, but rather showing the preeminence, how he's putting Israel in first place. Okay? Now, <clears throat> we also see later on in this section that I'm about to read where it says that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Now, once again, this isn't talking about a literal, like he's the first person born from the dead. Well, how can you say that, Alex? Well, there's other people who came back from the dead in the Bible. If you read Samuel, you'll see uh, the prophets in the Old Testament brought people back from the dead. If you look at even in Jesus' life, he brought two people back from the dead. So before Jesus came up from the grave, there were other people who came back to life. Now, the difference is these other people who came up from the grave, they tasted death again. Jesus never did. And so, once again, this is showing like the firstborn is not talking about the literal first time it's happened, but rather talking about the preeminence. Jesus is greater than anyone else who's come up from the dead. That's what it's saying here, okay? So, I feel like i got to make that clear because... That can be misleading, and if, we don't, if we're not thinking about the rest of Scripture while we read this, we might come to a wrong conclusion about what's actually being said here. And so just to, to further prove the point, like Jesus is eternal, okay? God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit make up the Trinity. Three persons of God. They always existed. They always will exist. Yes, that blows my mind, like... I can't fully comprehend that. But if so, but that's okay. That should give us hope. Because if we could fully understand God, He wouldn't be God. So God is infinite. God is above us. He should kind of blow our mind a little bit. Okay? So Jesus always existed before creation. He was not created. Um and so to, to further prove this, Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Hebrews 7, 3, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Uh, Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, everlasting Father, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so these are just like a snapshot. Like I just took just a few. Like we could be here all day just talking about the verses that show how Jesus is eternal and how he is unchanging. And so I just want to give you a snapshot of that before we move forward. Okay, now let's keep on in the second section, verses 15 through 18. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, now 
Sorry, I got to stop again. So I want to ask three questions real quick, okay? Because there's three answers in here. And this is really the whole reason we're talking about this text today, okay? Because once we look at these three questions, we're going to get to a big point that's being made here, okay? That I think is going to help us all if we call ourselves Christians, okay? The first question is this, is God in control? I think the answer's in here, in this section. Second question, does God's plans change? Okay, the answer's in here. And then three, why does God do anything? Sounds really vague, but we'll get there, all right? So those three questions, is God in control? Does God's plans change? Why does God do anything? Okay, I'm going to start in 16. For by Him, and that's Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. In Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. Preeminent means first place. Okay, first question, is God in control? Well, let's go to, let's go right here. Verse 17. He is before all things. In Him all things hold together. It says in Hebrews, it's by the will and the power of Jesus Christ that He holds the galaxies in place. It's, it's by, like, so there was, this, this was a theological and philosophical topic 2,000 years ago. The Pharisees debated on whether God took a rest on the Sabbath because they argued, well, He can't take a rest on the Sabbath. If He took a rest, everything would fall apart because they understood that like God's holding all things together. And so that's why Jesus, when he comes on the scenes, he says, my father works on the Sabbath, as do I. So that's, that's, that's kind of like a punch in the gut to say, yeah, yeah Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm God. Because not only does God work on the Sabbath, hold all things together, because if he let it go, it would just disintegrate. Jesus holds all things together. That's what it's saying here. I love what R.C. Sproul says. He says there's not a maverick molecule in the entire universe. There's nothing outside of God's control. God ordains, allows everything to pass. There's nothing that you will ever face that has ever happened that God did not know about or ordain or allow. And so that should give us great comfort. Like, if we, if, we, if we portray God any other way, one, it's not biblical, and two, why should we hope in a God who's not in control of everything? And just to further prove this point, because there's some wicked things that go on in this world. And you, you would say, like, how can God be in control of that? So, I'll put it like this. What's the most evil, wicked thing that's ever happened in all creation? Like, if we could say there's the worst sin ever, what would it be? That's right. The crucifixion, the torture of God himself in the flesh. That's the worst thing that's ever happened in all of creation. Was God in control of that? Did he prophesy about it in the Old Testament hundreds of years before it ever happened? To the detail of how they would 
cast lots for his clothes and how he would be traded for 30 pieces of silver? Is that prophesied in the Old Testament? Yes. God holds all things together. Do we understand it completely? No. It blows a fuse, just like the Trinity. But yet God is in control. We know this. The Bible says it. And that gives us great comfort to know that in your darkest day, Christian, God's in control. And He's doing something. Just like the song we just sang, uh, that God's doing something even when we can't see it. We have that hope knowing that God's in control, sovereignly in control of every single thing. Okay. So, yeah, it answers the question. God holds everything together. Uh, Second question, does God's plans change? And what we see here is in verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. He is the beginning, firstborn of the dead. So this is showing how Jesus existed from the beginning before creation. And that from creation, he knew exactly what he would do. Okay, now it's, it's maybe just alluded to here in this verse, but it's spelled out really clear in Revelation 13.8. Revelation 13, 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. It's talking about the beast at the end of time. And everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. Okay. Now, what it's saying is, if your name's not found in the book of life, you're not saved. In the name of this book, the book of life, the full title of this book is called the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. And when was it written? It says, was written from the foundation of the world. So that means before God created a mountain, ocean, a speck of dust, he wrote a book. And the name of that book is the Lamb's Book of Life, of the slaughter of the Lamb. So from the beginning, God wrote down your name, if you're a Christian. He thought of you, and he said, yeah, I'm going to die for them. From the beginning of the world. And so, do God's plans change? No. He set out from the beginning. He knew exactly what he was going to do. This wasn't plan B. He knew exactly from the beginning how he would accomplish it. Okay, now we're going to get to why in a second. But I just want to spell out that foundation for you. Okay? Uh, Third question. Why does God do anything? So, who, I'm just curious here, who did catechisms as a kid? Like, you can raise your hand. All right. We have two? All right. Catechisms are awesome. And so, they can be a little dry, but um, what's the first catechism? I think it's the first or it's the third. Was the chief end of man? Basically, it's a way of asking, why did God make anything? And real quick, catechisms are just like questions and answers that were developed like 500 years ago within the church, and it was a way to teach people who couldn't read the Bible for themselves orthodox Christianity, okay? And so, um, so one of the, the very first catechism is what's the chief end of man? And it's to glorify God by enjoying Him forever, okay? So why does God do anything? 
God does it for His glory. Okay? Now, that may sound really self-absorbed of God, but let's, let's be clear about something. If God were to make anything else more important than Himself, He would be a liar. Okay? If God would make anything else more important than Himself, He would be a liar. Because God is of the greatest value. And when we say that something else is more valuable than the greatest value, that's lying. Okay? So God has to be true to Himself. So He does everything for His glory. Now, now I basically just kind of explained it to you, but let's go to the Bible. What does the Bible say about that? Is, is that the way the Bible communicates why God does stuff? Let's uh, go to Isaiah 48, 11. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. This is God speaking. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Psalm 79, 9. Help us, O God, of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Okay? That's the reason God does everything is for his name's sake, for his glory. Now, once again, this should give us hope. Okay? Because you might think, like, well, why are you, you're making it all about God. Like, I thought God loves me. Like, he does, but that's not the motivation. And this is crucial, because if we get this wrong, we turn Christianity into works-based, okay? Because if it's about us being good enough, deserving enough to be loved by God, we continually have to work at being good enough and deserving of God's love. But if God does it for himself, for his own glory, for his own namesake, What's the motivation that keeps pushing God to love us? It's himself. All right, let me explain this with an illustration. It's kind of a cheesy one, but it helps me. So let's say uh, I borrow Pastor Philip's truck, the Taco Tacoma, and I'm driving it around, and I'm like, oh, shoot, I got to get some fuel. I'm running out. And so I pull in, and a lot of Toyota trucks in foreign countries, they run off diesel, even small ones. And... I was like, okay, so what's this thing run off of, gas or diesel? And I'm like, well, it doesn't matter. I'll just put something in it and see how far I get. Like, no, that's not, the way, that's not the way engines work. You need to put the right fuel in the engine so that it keeps going. The fuel for God saving us is not us because we are limited creatures. And if we're honest with ourselves, like, we screw up. Like, we can't even keep our own standards. Like, here in... Another month, it's going to be a new year, 2021. Hopefully, it'll be better than this year. And we're going to have a bunch of lists of things we're going to do to improve ourselves. We can't even keep that list. Like, like even if we're, we're really laid back, like, I'm, I'd overdo it. I'm like, all right, I'm not needing any snacks for, like, four months, you know. I overdo it, and then I'll mess up in, like, two days. But, but even if we're realistic and we're like, okay, we'll, we'll work out, like, three times a week. And uh, we're not going to eat, you know, pound cake you know, four times a week. We're only going to do it once a week, something like that. We can't even keep that. Like, we will even fail at that, like our own standards, let alone an infinite, perfect, holy God who set a perfect standard. We fall short. And so 
God, and so if we make God's motivation for saving us, us, we fall short. We're limited. And we continually are pursuing these works to try to be deserving enough. Because when we think about it like that, we will find ourselves depressed. Like, beat down again and again, again and again, God, I screwed up. How can you still love me? Because we're making it about us. But when we make it about God, like that motivation, it never ends. Like, we can rest in his holiness, in his love for us, because it doesn't run out. It's a steady stream. And this is the difference between every other religion in the world and Christianity. Every other religion in the world says, do this, 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 and this, and you might be good enough for God. Every cult that perverts and twists Christianity into something else makes it about that. Do this, this, keep this, come to church this many times, and you might be good enough for God when you get there. Jesus says, no, you'll never be good enough. I'm going to come take your place. You deserve that cross, and I'm climbing up there. And everything that you deserve, I'm taking it all. And the righteousness that I have, I give to you. You can have it. It's a gift. It's free. It's grace. That's what grace means. It's a gift. It's free. We can't do anything to deserve it. When we try to make it out like we can deserve it, we're spitting in the face of God and saying, it's not a gift. I can earn it. So this is a huge thing. Uh, okay. So those are the three questions we see answered in this text. Is God in control? Yes. He holds all things together. Does God's plan change? No. He set out from the beginning that he would be a slaughtered lamb. He knew exactly what he was doing. Three, why does God do anything? He does it for his glory, and that's good news because the motivation for him continues no matter what we do. Okay. Now, if we understand those three things, I ask the question after reading this, why? Why would God choose to do it this way? Like, I'm, I'm selfish. I'm a human being. I would not create the world and choose to die for anyone. Why would God choose to do it this way? And how can this be for his glory? Like, I don't understand it until we get to this place. God wanted to show how incredibly fierce his love is. Like, his wrath is seen when he executes righteousness. His eternality is, is seen because he has existed forever. His immutability, his unchangingness is seen because he's the same today, yesterday, and forever. And the way his love is demonstrated is that he said, these people who have spit on my face, I'm going to die for them, I'm going to choose to die for them, and I'm going to choose to live with them and love them for all eternity. All creation, all the angels in heaven, for all eternity will say, how great is the love of God that you would choose to love these people. Why did God choose to create the world this way? How does this glorify God? Because it exercised more fully the love that God already has. So that helps me, okay? 
in fact, while I was in Mexico, I, I taught about this at a church um, in Mexico, and then the next day I had a McCall staffer call me, and that's where I work is Camp McCall, and we've got a bunch of college guys who um, work up there during the summer, and one of them called me. He's like, Alex, I'm struggling. Like, how can God love me? Like, I see he's holy. Like, he's perfect. Like, how can God love me? I don't see. And, and the problem is, he was, he was focused on him being deserving enough of that love. He was focused on how God is glorified in loving him. But when he sees that God's love is displayed more fully by how ferocious God's love is to save a people who don't deserve it, like that, that makes sense to him. It makes sense to me. Um, and it helps me because I can rest in knowing that God's love for us is never ending when we rest in that. Okay. Now, sorry, I got kind of deep with y'all. Does that make sense? Okay. <clears throat> okay. So now we're going to go to the third section. Verses 19 and 20. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Okay, so <clears throat> I'm going to throw this word on y'all. You don't have to really know what it means. You believe it if you're a Christian. It's the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, that's just a big word that it says that God was, Jesus was fully God and fully human. Okay? So, the, if, you, if, if you study church history, the first 500 years of church history is people fighting over this. Okay? Just trying to explain who Jesus was and how he was God. Um, and... And we have to be careful about how we say it, but that's basically what we believe as Christians, is that Jesus is fully man and fully God. Now, why is this important? This is what the text is saying. In him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to, recon to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Okay, so making peace means that before we're Christians, we're enemies to God. We are not at peace with God. We're living in darkness. We're treasuring that sin, whatever we have, and we're pursuing ourselves, and we spit in God's face and say, no, God, I don't want to do it your way. I want to do it my way. We're enemies to God, okay? So a substitute has to pay for our sin. That's what the cross is all about. It has to be a human. It can't be a very powerful angel it has to be a human. It has to be a perfect substitute on our behalf. Okay, that's why that's important. Then why is it important that he be fully God? Well, our sin, it, I don't like talking about hell, but we have to at some point. And it will literally take eternity to pay off our sin to an infinitely holy God. Amen. And so our substitute has to be worth an infinite amount. Jesus Christ was both of those. 
fully man, a perfect substitute, and fully God. He was worth an infinite amount. He could swallow all of the the debt that we owe God in one instance. Okay, so that's what we see there. And now we're going to the last part. Verses 21 to 23. And you who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Okay. If we, if we don't have a healthy understanding of regeneration, we can misunderstand this text. Uh, let, me, un, let me define regeneration real quick. So regeneration is basically 2 Corinthians 5.17. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Okay, why is this important? Is because if it says, because if we don't understand regeneration, we're going to make it about works. We're going we're to twist the gospel and go back to we got to work our way up to God. We can lose our salvation. we got to keep maintaining good, right standing with God. And so, if we don't understand regeneration, that's where we might think this text is talking about, where it says, if indeed you continue in the faith. So, it is true, if God has truly done a work in our heart, we will continue to follow Him. So, I I got this illustration from Paul Washer, but, like, sometimes we minimize how big of a deal our salvation is. Like coming in contact with the God of the universe is no small thing. So let me explain it like this. Let's say I, uh, I, I showed up late. And so I got in here, and the, the band's finished up last song, I stumble up here, I'm like, guys, I'm sorry I'm late. I was, uh, I was changing a tire. I had a flat tire and on 385. And I was changing it, and um, a lug nut rolled off into the highway. And I went to go pick it up, and I got hit by a Mack truck. I was coming 80 miles down the road. Like, it hit me, like, flat. Like, I'm sorry I'm late. Like, well, you're a liar. (laughs) You're an idiot, or you're a liar, because you would not be standing here if that happened. You'd still be flattened on 385. And so, but that's the way sometimes people treat Christianity. God's a lot bigger than a Mack truck. God's the biggest force in all. He's above creation. He's the biggest thing ever. And if we have come in contact and been saved by the God of the universe, and He has worked in our hearts and made us new, something's changed. Like we're not the same anymore. Something big has hit us and changed us. And if that's happened, we are different it's not about working our way up to God or being in right standing, like, yeah, I said a prayer, now I just got to maintain this Christian thing. No, if we truly have been touched by the God of the universe, something has changed inside of us, 
and we will continue to follow him. So, regeneration is huge to understand this section. I'm going to use one more analogy. And so, it's it's this perfect for regeneration to get a full understanding because I believe this is one of the doctrines that is not talked about enough in Christianity. And so, like, Baptists typically, they're the ones like, once saved, always saved. And yes, that's true if you've truly been born again. So, it's, yeah, it's not about saying a prayer one time and then go living like the devil. Like, no, you're not saved. The Bible says you'll be known by your fruits. But, but if you had truly tasted salvation, grace, the gift of salvation, you have been changed. You're a new creation. It's not perfection, but it's a new direction. So, and that's the difference between Peter and Judas. If you look at the Gospels, both of them denied Jesus Christ. Both of them. What's the difference? One's saved, one's not. The difference is Peter repented of his sins. He got back up. Even though he did it three times, he repented of his sins. The difference is, it's not perfection, it's a new direction. If we've truly been changed by God, it doesn't matter how many times we stumble, it's that we get back up and follow Him as proof of the evidence that's already existing inside of us. Okay? So yes, once saved, always saved, if we understand it rightly. And so it's that regeneration. And so one more illustration, and I got this one from Paul Washer too, but and y'all probably heard it if you've heard me talk about regeneration, because I always use it, but it's so good. Um, suppose there's a pig, and a pig, what does a pig do? A pig eats slop. It loves slop. It wallows in the mud, and it eats slop. But let's say that you can turn that pig into a human being. Well, a human being sees what he's eating, and he can't be sustained by that anymore. He's like, no, give me some, give me some turnip greens. Let me get some turkey. Let me get a ribeye steak. He can't digest that filth anymore. That's the same thing that's happened to a Christian. At one time, they could swallow down iniquity, sin, pornography, alcoholism, gossip, and slander, and sustain themselves on it. But then God changes us. We become a new creature, new creation, a new creature, and we don't swallow that sin anymore and sustain ourselves on it. No, we go to God's Word. Now, here's the thing. That human may look at that slop, like, man, that looks good. Let me get a big spoonful. And gets it and just takes a big spoonful. He might even swallow it if he doesn't spew it out right then. But he can't digest it. Later, he'll throw it up. That's what we see when someone's truly been changed by God. They may go back to the old wicked things of the world and say, yeah, give me some of that. But they can't keep it down. They can't be satisfied with it. They'll throw it up. What is that called? It's called repentance. Trust in Christ. Okay, so I'm closing. I'm wrapping up. I just want to recap what we talked about. And there's so much more here. This is such a deep and dense section of Scripture. There's a reason the early church memorized this. 
Uh, the first section is the inheritance in two kingdoms, the domain of darkness, the kingdom of Christ. And every person in the world is either in the domain of darkness or the kingdom of Christ. Second, why did God create the world? To exercise how fiercely he could love a people who didn't deserve it for all eternity. Three, God is fully man and fully God. That's what it takes to pay for our sin before God. Four, regeneration. We have to truly be changed. Truly be changed. So, all of this is basically talking about the preeminence, the first place of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's what this whole passage is talking about. And so, I have to ask, where is Jesus in your life? Is he first place? If he's not, what does the Bible say? The Bible says, repent and believe. Repent means to turn away from your sin. Quit digesting the filth and turn to God. Believe, trust in Christ alone. Don't try to work up to God. You'll never get there. And it'll be a miserable hobby to try to be good enough. Trust in His work. Him being fully God and fully man on the cross, that's good enough. Like that, that took care of all your sin. The one you're going to do this afternoon and this week when someone cuts you off, He paid for that sin. Like everything. Nothing. And so we can rest in knowing that God love, truly loves us because He paid for all the sin. And if we've truly been changed by that, we're going to want to follow Him. We're going to produce fruit. And so I love this. I read uh, at the very end of this chapter, I can resonate with these words, how God's in complete control and it's His work working within me. Last verse of this chapter. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. Like, it is toil. It's hard. But He gives us. He sustains us. He gives us what we need when we go to Him and treasure Him and put Him first. So, I'm going to ask the band to come up here to play the last song. Um, and I want to ask you, uh, if you, if you want to talk to me, you can. If you just want to come and kneel and cry out to God, Today is the day of salvation. If you haven't truly tasted that Mack truck of grace, the gift, like today's the day. You can cry out to God. You can seek forgiveness. If you want to go from the domain of darkness to where you're treasuring your sin to the kingdom of Christ, cry out to Him. Repent and believe. Turn away from sin. Trust in Christ alone for salvation, not anything else. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Father, I pray for help. I pray um, if there's anything I said that may be misleading or misunderstood, Father, I pray that you just move that away, Father. And I pray for anything I said that was helpful and useful. pray that you would use that, Father. And we give you our lives, Father. We want to, to treasure you, Father, not the things of this world. Please keep us. Please hold us. 
to follow you more, Father, and to trust in you and to love you more. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.